Watching your parents or grandparents decline is so difficult. When should you intervene when their wish is to stay home forever? What do you say when one is caring for the other and you physically see how exhausted they're becoming? I'm your host, Valerie Borgman, and this is Kelly's story. I would hear that she had been sleeping on the couch for weeks at a time because my grandpa would get up in the middle of the night and he would walk around and he would try to leave. And so even her quality of sleep was affected. She was deteriorating in front of our eyes. And I think in many ways, my family didn't know what to do. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Senior Living, a podcast for sons, daughters, grandkids, and spouses who suddenly find themselves tangled in the search for senior living and care. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and check out our doable download in today's show notes for a printable summary of the show and a bonus tip from our guest. For our listeners who know about my company, which is ClearPath Senior Living Solutions, you might recognize our guest today, Kelly Allen, who works for ClearPath. <laughs> so, hi, Kelly. Hi. Hello. <laughs> How long have you worked for the company? Oh, my gosh. Oh, I was thinking about that today. It's been three years. Three years because I started when I started my master's. Yeah. That's so crazy that it's been three years. <laughs> three years before that. That's yeah. so wild. Well, I'm so glad that you are sharing your story. I think it's just, it's why we do our family talk episodes. It's to help other families. And so I'm really glad that you're on the show today and we'll just jump right in. Where do you want to start? Oh my goodness. I can share why I'm working for ClearPath, why I chose to work with seniors. I think a piece of my story was my main you know, motivator for even having a desire to work with this clientele. The two people that were most instrumental were my grandparents. So my, my grandfather, when I was in high school, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Early onset and he was fairly young. He was maybe 71, 72. And that was diagnosis. So they had seen signs even earlier than that. He would go out and went for a drive and couldn't figure out his way back. Or he would go on a walk and do the same route every single day and couldn't find his way back. And so these are really early signs. And I, I had no idea about Alzheimer's. I didn't know that Alzheimer's was a form of dementia. I didn't even know what dementia was. I just knew that my, my grand, uh, my gramps, that's what we called him. My gramps was confused and our family was concerned and I didn't really understand the extent of it at the time. And I guess, how could I? And so my grandpa had this diagnosis for quite a while and he also had cancer. He had blood cancer. At the time when I was in college, my grandmother had stopped um, chemo. So this was your grandmother making the decision to stop chemo for your grandfather. Yes. She made the decision um, because he no longer could make those decisions for himself. He was communicating, but it we didn't you know, understand what he was talking about. He wasn't able to, by this point, he wasn't able to identify our names. 
who we were, even my own father. He didn't, he didn't know his name. Was her decision to stop it for his quality of life? Yes. And it had seemed that it was not, it was not helping anymore. You know, it was not decreasing symptoms. His cancer had advanced. And with his dementia, it was becoming more difficult to even, you know, have appointments. He spent a lot more time at home because his dementia was so advanced. And so at this time, she had stopped his chemo. And this was right when I had graduated college. So I moved home and I guess however you want to say it to me was God's pressing on me to spend time with them. I had kind of missed four years of time with them when I was at school. And so moving home for the year put me in closer proximity to them. So about 10 minutes away. And so I felt like I should visit them once a week. And so I did it. And if it wasn't once a week, it was every other week, but that's when I really saw the progression. Was that shocking to you to come home after four years? Was there a big difference? Yes. My grandfather couldn't communicate even basic things at this point. He couldn't be specific with anything. So if he was upset, a lot of times he wouldn't want us in his home. And so he would say, you have to go up there. And he was pointing to the roof. Like you have to get out basically or leave. He'd always been kind of a recluse and didn't love having people in his home. And so, but this felt much more prominent and he was trying to communicate it, you know, and at the time our family would kind of just brush it off. Like, oh, that's just Gramps. That's, you know, but I look back now and think he was probably overwhelmed. He was overwhelmed and he couldn't communicate even his basic needs, which was probably really frustrating for him. And so my visits mainly consisted of spending time with my grandmother. I mean, in communication. So asking her how she's doing, really just being there for her. I I have a very specific memory of one of my last visits with them when they were both well, and they were listening to Hawaiian music in that they, they had gone to Hawaii several years prior. And this was their favorite Hawaiian artist. And my grandpa was just sitting at the kitchen table and patting his hand on the table like to the beat yes oh wow yes and you can just tell he was he must have been in Hawaii or felt like he was in Hawaii and so it was really impactful image that I still hold on to yeah music and memory so much has been studied about that and I just love that yes yeah he really he always connected with music And so they had tons of records that they would play. And my whole family really connects well with music. But that was important to him. And I think I remember thinking he feels safe where he is. You know, he's at his kitchen table. He's with my grandma. But one thing in contrast I could see was my grandma was really tired. I could, you know, I could tell. Being the caregiver. Yes. She was his primary caregiver. Basically, all of his, from the beginning of his cancer diagnosis, from the beginning of his dementia diagnosis, her goal was to keep him at home forever. And, and that is, you know, noble. And that's something that is the most ideal situation if that could happen and if it's safe to happen. But I could tell that she was 
declining in many ways. She herself was declining emotionally, even physically. Since I was gone for several years, I really just heard stories. So I would hear that she had been sleeping on the couch for weeks at a time because my grandpa would get up in the middle of the night and he would walk around and he would try to leave. And so even her quality of sleep was affected. She was deteriorating in front of our eyes. And I think in many ways, my family didn't know what to do. Oh, wow. It's so hard. Were they taking turns like visiting? My family was very, very loyal to my grandparents. And so naturally they would visit. I don't think that there was ever like an increase of, well, now we have to visit more often. At least that wasn't what was communicated to me, but they naturally, like my aunt would take my grandparents shopping every week or several times a week because my grandmother never got her license. So she couldn't oh. drive. <laughs> were they, were they loyal also in honoring your grandmother's wishes to yeah. stay at home and be home with her husband? Yes, they really were for so long. And I, I think that, you know, in hindsight, they would have intervened much quicker if they had known, if they had known what to look for or how to communicate those things. My grandmother and my grandparents were very private people in many ways. They didn't, they didn't ask for help. They were always the one to offer help. My grandmother babysat all of us when we were younger. And so that was her primary role was a caregiver, you know, after she cared for her kids, she cared for her grandkids. Yeah. And so what were the steps that led up to the decision to have an intervention? So from what I understand, because I wasn't involved in the actual intervention, I was just very involved in the aftermath of what happened as a result. So I remember very specifically, it was Thanksgiving of 20. 2013. At that point, I was home. And I remember my grandpa was not doing well. It was probably his last outing with the family. And he struggled even to get off the couch to get into when they were leaving. It took like three people to get him into the car. And my dad told me specifically that my grandpa yelled at him during that time and cussed at him. And it was really my dad still talks about it. Like it was really impactful for him to get that kind of response from my grandfather. And so I remember listening to my family talk about, man, you know, Gramps really, really needs to go in a home or we need to do something. And I remember actually, it was like in front of my grandmother and right. And so I'm, I'm kind of a bystander, right. Hadn't been involved for like four years. And so if I could go backwards, you know, I would have really encouraged my family to kind of take this conversation elsewhere because it was so sensitive to her. So I think she knew, I think she knew that our family was going to try to intervene. Because they were, they were talking about it right at the Thanksgiving table. Was that where? Yes. Yes. <laughs> the holidays tend to be kind of a trigger for these conversations because everybody's usually in the same room and they're all having the same experience. They're all witnessing the decline. Yes. So that, I think that's very common. So, wow. Yes. So that was the beginning. Was there an actual, I guess, official intervention? Yes. 
And I didn't get a ton of details on that intervention, but what I know is it moved pretty quickly. Once they intervened, they talked to my grandmother. How did she take it? I don't think that she took it well. I think that she understood. I really don't think that she took it well. And the reason I know that is because they'd been married for over 60 years. They got married when she was 15. Oh my God. And she was 17. Wow. And here they are in their 70s. Wow. Which in their late 70s. And which is actually relatively young when you think about moving into a senior living community. And yes. you mentioned that it moved very quickly after that. So did you have any knowledge of family members already going out and touring communities? My aunts and uncles went out with my grandmother to tour. And was that before or after the official conversation? That was after. So it still moved very quickly after that. It did. It moved, I would say within the next month. Did she want to wait till after Christmas? I'm sure she did. Yeah. That's something I hear a lot. I'm sure she did, but it didn't, it didn't happen that way. It happened quick. It happened after Thanksgiving. Wow. So it did happen quickly. Yep. Yeah. It happened after Thanksgiving. It happened in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Today's episode is brought to you by ClearPath Senior Living Solutions. ClearPath helps families find assisted living, memory care, and other resources. Find our contact information in today's show notes. So he moved into the assisted living and five days later, she had a stroke. Oh my gosh. Yep. She had a stroke. It must've been early in the morning and my family they were calling her because they were supposed to come over that day to visit with her or take her shopping. And they could not get a hold of her. My cousin and her husband went to the door after, you know, several attempts to call. And thankfully, again, they all lived really close. This was an easy, just pop in kind of thing. They came over and she would hardly open the door for them. Because she couldn't? I think in part because she couldn't. And I think in part because She didn't want them to know what happened. Oh my gosh. So yeah. And they kind of pushed themselves in because she wouldn't open the door and they noticed instantly that something was wrong because half of her face was drooped. Wow. Because of the stroke. Wow. And so they were like, granny, you, you have to let us in. Something is wrong. And she was like, no, no, no. Everything's fine. It's okay. And when they went in, they saw obviously more of her face. They saw that her blinds had been pulled down, like broken off, like something, maybe it happened in the kitchen Mm. and she was holding onto something and it went down. She wasn't on the ground. And so she was up, obviously up. I don't know. We don't know if she had fallen, but she had a pretty prominent stroke and they were trying to figure out what to do because she would not let them call to take her to the hospital. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine. My cousin, this is my oldest cousin and her husband went over and she said she had never seen granny that angry. My cousin's husband left to make a phone call to call the ambulance to pick up my grandmother because she would not voluntarily go. 
And she was angry. She was so mad. Even when they closed the, the ambulance doors, she was yelling at my cousin. Wow. Why do you think that was? We figured out pretty quickly once she got to the hospital. This is so wild. This is, it's interesting to talk about. Once she got to the hospital, we figured out that she had stage four uterine cancer. (gasps) And she didn't want you guys to know. No one knew. Remember I had mentioned my family members would take them shopping. And for a year, my aunt would help them buy briefs and pads. And my aunt assumed that it was for my grandpa, but it was for my grandmother because she had been bleeding for a year. Oh my gosh. And didn't tell anyone. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. So she knew, she knew that she was sick. Oh my gosh. So now you've got your gramps, (laughs) your grandfather is in an assisted living You've got now your grandma is in the hospital. Across the street. From your grandpa. <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So now what, what happens from here? Oh, my goodness. And so now no one had power of attorney. And so thankfully, my grandmother agreed to sign over power of attorney to my uncle. In the hospital? In the hospital. Yes. Thank goodness she was cognitive and able to do that. Yes. I don't even, I should ask, I should go back and ask. I don't even know how that worked with my grandfather because she was his power of attorney. And so I think it just went to next of kin is my understanding. If she was unable to make those decisions. Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's one of those things that varies state by state, how exactly the laws work with power of attorney. Some states are more strict, but yeah, that, that is an interesting question because he would not have been cognitive enough to do that paperwork. No. So at this point, did your grandmother move back home? Yes. So my grandmother, her cancer was passed this stage of, you know, chemo radiation. None of that was feasible at this point. Mm. And also that was my grandmother's wish. She didn't want any treatment. Now keep in mind, it it makes sense because she never went to the hospital or she never went to the doctor about it. She never addressed it. So my family respected her wishes. My My grandmother, this is also interesting to note, my grandparents, mainly my grandmother, grew up Christian science. So she didn't really believe in in going to the hospital, in going, you know, seeking medical treatment. She only ever went to the hospital for her seven babies, and that was it. And she didn't want to be there, you know. And so my family made the decision with the doctors to put her on hospice. Did you also have to hire caregivers? What did that look like, that process? We, we hired, okay, so we hired one and it was a bath aid. I don't actually even remember if we hired her. She may have just volunteered to help. So this was 
a family friend who was a caregiver. And so she was my grandmother's bath aide. My grandmother's wishes were to go home. And so we, since we set her up with hospice, she got a hospital bed. Now that I think about this, this is so interesting. We placed her hospital bed in the living room. So she was in the central area. Like she didn't want anything moved around in her bedroom or anything changed. She just wanted to be in the living room. And that was a central area for all of us. And my family really gathered together during that time. As you know, and I, don't, I think maybe some of our listeners may know, hospice does not guarantee, you know, it doesn't guarantee you get full-time caregivers. You know, you get the services of maybe a bath aid, you get, you know, chaplain services if needed, a social worker, but, and my grandmother didn't have a lot of money. And so our family made the executive decision to be her caregivers and to be there for her around the clock. Yeah. I think a lot of families are faced you know, with that same situation, because you're right. What you were talking about with hospice, hospice isn't a full-time caregiving situation. No. So this is the point where your family sort of had to set up that schedule and, you know, who's got Monday and who's spending the night tonight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And they were incredible. They were incredible. How long was this your situation? Two weeks. Oh, yeah. So my grandmother passed away two weeks later on January 7th. Did she get to visit your grandpa? She visited him the days before she had her stroke. Oh, but she never did get to make it back after that. No. No. And the crazy part is my, but this is not uncommon. This is not uncommon. What I'm about to say My grandmother passed before my grandfather. She died two weeks before him. Or sorry, 18 days, 18 days apart. And you're right. That is common that a lot of couples that have been together for that many years, you hear these stories where they pass so close together. Yep. Yep. So so we were doing care. This was the, the wildest season for us as a family. We were doing care and staying with my grandmother. And then we were going to visit my grandfather. And at this point, my grandfather, because, you know, there's so many interesting parts to our story because he wasn't receiving visits from her anymore. He declined rapidly. She was the last person that he asked for, or he died. And I was actually with him when he died. So they moved him from the assisted living to a skilled nursing facility because his care needs increased. I was with my father when he passed away. And I've talked about this on the show. It's just an experience that is really hard to explain. What was your experience like? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, my grandfather's dementia was so advanced, like I had shared. And so he at, was at this point where he didn't recognize any of us, but I think he knew he was comforted by us. And so there was one day where I went to go visit and we knew that he was declining. And actually they were about to sign him up for hospice. My dad called me, you know, saying he's declining. If I wanted to go 
see him. And at the time I was working really close to where the hospital was. I was probably five minutes away. And so I went over to visit my grandfather and several other family members were there. And we noticed that he, his breathing was a little bit more labored. And so we told him like, Hey, Gramps, you can let go now. We're, we're all here with you. And I, it makes me emotional when I think about it. I felt his last heartbeat. So my aunt and I were, you know, sitting right next to him, holding his hand, placing my hand over his heart and could feel his heartbeat. And then you could feel that there were, it was slowing down. And then there was two and then there was one and then he went and we were all together. Keep in mind, my grandmother had died 18 days before. This was now January 25th. We had just had her service. So I went to go visit my grandpa. This was like a week or so before I visited him right before I went to my grandmother's service. Wow. And I told him, I said, you know, granny says hello. Like she loves you. Ma, she, he called her ma. Ma says hello. So it was so surreal. It was such a surreal time for us. You know, this whole time we had cared for our grandfather and watched him decline. And all the while, my grandmother was internally suffering alone and we didn't know. That's so, it's so powerful. And I think one of the things that really stands out for me is something that not everyone knows. And that's that when someone has declined to that point, they can still hear you. And so your grandfather heard you. He may not have understood because of his dementia, but I am certain that he felt comforted. Yeah. And I, I have been now with several, you and I, you and I met when I was working as a social worker for skilled nursing. And so at this point in my life, I have now been with several residents that took their last breath. You know, I was with them when they took their last breath. And so I think having that experience with my grandfather prepared me for these moments and made me reflect on how powerful it is for someone to be with you when you take your last breath. And I I say the same thing to those residents is you are not alone. Yes. And it's okay to let go. Yeah. You hear those stories very often. And I think we even have an episode where another family shared their story. Their dad didn't die until they left the room. There are all these stories of that permission to let go and how important that is, you know, not passing until that person comes from out of town or, you know, there are all these stories and I think it is just so powerful. And so you have described this as this experience that you went through and you talked about at the beginning of the show as the experience that led you to working with seniors. Yep. I think back on that experience. And so often, I mean, I'm 
essentially I'm a social worker for seniors. And so that has been my role for the last five or six years now. And I love it because my experience with my grandparents from the time I felt like I should be visiting them once a week, all the way through the grieving process with my family, that time marked me. And it, it made me reflect on, you know, man, what if there was a social worker that, or, you know, a placement advisor that intervened at this time or at this stage, could something have been different? And it's an, it's not a matter of like, I regret what happened. We understand everything happens for a reason, but for me, it was so important to use the experiences that I had in my family to help other people in their situations. And in a very vulnerable way and saying that I, I walked through this with my family. Here's what I would have done. Here's what I would have wished would have happened, honestly. And here's how we can, and just help and, you know, promote quality of life. I love what you said about helping other people through your experiences, because I think that's so important when we can relate in that way. So what do you wish would have happened differently for your family? Mm. I mean, I know that I could not control my grandmother's decisions, you know, her privacy, and I want to respect that. But what I would have, what I would have wanted is someone to walk with us to know how to gently approach the situation, that the intervention could have happened much sooner. Even and not even the intervention, the conversation could have happened much sooner than it did. Because at this point, she is in stage four cancer. Her body was so worn down. That means that this had been happening for years. Her burnout began likely years before the culmination of what how it ended. Yeah. And I think I, I do think a lot of families probably share that same sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. And we're kind of walking through this situation now with my in-laws, grandparents, my grandmother has had significant health situations. As you know, over the summer had an infection that went to her brain is now really unsteady on her feet has been in the hospital several times. And my family in some ways is looking to me, you know, having these conversations with me of like, what, what do we do next? You're the one. I'm the one. It's like, it's like being a nurse in a family yes. or a doctor in a family. Yes. And we do. We have, we're so thankful. We have doctors in our family. You do have doctors in your family. We do. Yeah. Yep. Um, my brother-in-law and my uncle, and they were really instrumental. But now what I had to tell my um, in-laws just the other day, and kind of what I would love to say to my grandfather is the importance of distinguishing between the role of the loved one and the caregiver. Yes. And what steps can we take to prevent those two roles from intertwining? And it's not bad. It's just hard. And for my in-laws, even to be the ones to be caregivers, you lose that sense of belonging, that relationship that you had built. It changes in many ways. And so when a loved one becomes a caregiver, you're at a higher risk of experiencing resentment, receiving resentment, 
physically experiencing burnout, emotional burnout, everything, all the while you're, you think you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And we see this a lot where the caregiver gets sicker than oh. the one they're caring for. Yes. And there's research for that, especially loved ones with dementia. You are at a greater risk of experiencing burnout, caring for someone with dementia than you are a stroke victim. And so I'm trying to gently, right? As placement advisors, we gently navigate and communicate the importance of finding another way so that you can feel like the role that you've had as a loved one can stay protected. Absolutely. There are so many programs too, you know, state by state, city by city that can help with dementia, whether it's a day program where you can get a break or bringing in caregivers. There are options out there for sure. Your family has been through so much. Do, is there one thing that stands out for you? Just one doable tip that you would have for families? I would say, don't be afraid to ask questions. A lot of family members, what I find are hesitant to ask for help. It's an uncomfortable experience. It just is at first. It's uncomfortable to, to say, hey, I need help, right? Asking the questions of what does it look like for me to receive help? A lot of times when families come to me, in many ways, they're, they're in the stage of burnout. They're there. Asking those questions feels tender. It feels vulnerable, but it's extremely important. Check out this episode's doable download in show notes for details, including industry terms and definitions we discussed, as well as a bonus tip from our guest. Have questions or your own tips to share? Leave us a message. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, make it doable.